0: I'll turn with me to Psalm 119, if you have a Bible. We've sung Psalm 115, we heard a bit from Psalm 116, and 117, and 118, and now Psalm 119. I'm not sure if we planned that, at least I didn't, but here we are. Back in 1996, I began seminary, which for me meant that I began Hebrew Uh, Not Hebrews, like a book of the New Testament, but Hebrew, the language. The thought of learning Hebrew was intimidating to me, maybe terrifying. The only thing I knew about Hebrew, literally the only thing I knew about Hebrew, was that the Hebrew alphabet was in our English Bibles, in Psalm 119, where every stanza of eight verses uh, is marked by a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So in the few days before classes began, as Sarah and I were moving into a new apartment, uh, I was trying to memorize the sound of the Hebrew alphabet uh, based on my reading of an English Bible. And then we came to our first day of Hebrew class, and my nervousness was put a little at ease when the professor hit play on the VCR-TV combo that was wheeled in on the cart. Remember those? And up came Barney. Barney, that beloved and hated purple fuzzy dinosaur. And he was teaching children the Hebrew alphabet by song. That's how we learned it. In fact, I think Demi Lovato was also on stage with Barney long before she was famous for that, or for whatever she's famous for these days. Well, that Hebrew professor, as many of you know, is none other than... Ron Geezy our executive pastor, who was up earlier. Uh, so I thank Ron for introducing me to Barney. I didn't have kids back then. I didn't know about Barney. <laughs> Ron was a great teacher of Hebrew. Uh, he would give extra credit on tests if you had memorized a Hebrew verse. And so I thought, you know, I'm gonna need as much help as possible with my grade in Hebrew. And so I memorized several verses in Hebrew uh, over his classes over the years. And, and one passage was Psalm 119, verses 33 to 40, the first half of our passage for today. I've long since forgotten uh, how to write it or read it, really, or how to say it. But of course, the, the usefulness of having memorized it at one time was not just limited to the extra credit I got from. Dr. Geezy's class. I remember coming to those verses in my mind and then reviewing them at the end of my seminary days and uh, as we were moving to England in the next fall and not easy days per se. And I came in those days to pray those verses uh, in the Hebrew. Not just rehearse them, but pray them. And so they're very personal to me. And so it's with some personal fondness and some sweet memories that we come to these verses in Psalm 119 today. Verses 33 to 48. Let's read them. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies, and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually, forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place. For I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, and shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. Well, we could analyze these verses a number of different ways. One would be to notice the string of requests that are in the first stanza. Teach me, give me, lead me, incline my heart, turn my eyes etc. And then we would notice the emphasis in the second stanza on resolve. I will keep, I shall walk, I have sought, I will speak, I will lift up. That'd be one way to analyze these verses. Or we can look at things more thematically, especially emphasizing what's new in Psalm 119 thus far. As we've talked earlier in this series, or even as you know if you've read Psalm 119 before on your own, there is some repetition of ideas and themes that go throughout these 176 verses. And yet, this far in, at verse 33 and following, the psalmist hasn't shot off all of his bullets. He's not completely recycling at this point. And besides, remember, each stanza or each couple of stanzas seem to have a particular emphasis. And so with these two stanzas, what's unique, I think, is a, a two-fold relationship to the world. A relationship to the world. Notice, the things of the world are what occupy the really the center of the first stanza, That would be verse 36 and 37. And then the people of the world occupy a good portion of the middle of the second stanza. Or we could think in terms of idols and enemies. Things of the world. People of the world. Now by the way, the concept of the world isn't always bad in scripture. In fact, oftentimes it's good. The Bible speaks of this world as good, created by God, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. The stars, uh, they speak his handiwork. But other verses do seem to emphasize the fallen nature of this world. This world is a sin-cursed world. It's a sin-filled world, this side of the fall. And so, as we said last week, we remember from Jesus' prayer in John 17 He wants us, yes, to be in the world, but not of the world, not of that fallen world order. Or 1 John 2.15, we're not to love the world or the things that are in the world. And we shouldn't be surprised by suffering in the world. That's, That's the world in a fallen world, a fallen nature. And so it's the fallen world that the psalmist here has in mind, knowing that God's word is what he needs to navigate this fallen world. So let me point out actually five themes which according to the psalmist's example, we should pray and praise God for in this fallen world. The first theme, pray to understand in order to obey. The first few verses tell us this. He prays for understanding and more understanding of the Bible. Teach me, O Lord. Give me understanding. Lead me in your path. We've seen this kind of thing before, especially last week with with that great verse 18. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things out of your law. We said last week that this is called illumination. God lights up his word. He supernaturally supernaturally reveals what is there in print he helps us to see now we gave time to that last week and we won't belabor the point this week but what's new in this week's passage is his reason for requesting from God more understanding of the word his reason is for obedience obedience you see it? Verse 33, teach me the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Verse 34, give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. He wants to go God's way. He wants to do God's commands. He wants to do it to the end of life, verse 33, for the rest of his life, until he dies. And he wants to do it with his whole heart, verse 34, By the way, when you hear the whole heart in scripture, or you read of it, don't think emotions or affections, or at least don't just think emotions and affections. We sometimes refer to head and heart in our culture, and by that we mean mind and feelings. That can be useful at times, but oftentimes in the Old Testament, especially the heart or the mind is really that organ of the whole being it's it's the head and the heart it's the affections the will the intellect it's all that it's what the new testament calls the inner man and so again this psalmist wants to obey god's commands with all that is within him not just with his feelings but not least with his feelings and so he asks god to help him understand the bible that he might do the Bible. It might help us think about this a little bit more, a little bit deeper, if we consider what he doesn't ask God for here, what he could have asked God for here, but what he's not asking for here. For instance, notice he doesn't assume that he understands enough already. He he doesn't treat God's word like a simple to-do list and once you've read through it once, you know what to do and what not to do. It's not a, a list of the teacher's classroom rules posted on the wall. The Bible is deeper than that. And this man assumes that the Bible is more profound than a list of rules. The Bible is understandable, yes, but it's not fully fathomable either. This is a mature, godly Bible guy who probably studied the Bible more than you or I have done. But he doesn't assume that he's got enough in. He doesn't assume that he's digested and processed it enough. He wants to be taught. He wants to understand, to be led. Notice he doesn't assume that he can get more understanding on his own. Of course, he believes in careful study even meditation and memorization. He believes time in front of words matters. But he doesn't doesn't believe it's merely a matter of time or merely a matter of literary mechanics. It's not a math formula for him. He needs help, and so he prays for help. Notice he doesn't desire and pray for more understanding of God's word in order to... And here we could think of several things. In order to scratch an itch of curiosity, some people treat the Bible like that. Huh, I hadn't seen that before. Huh, I hadn't learned that before. And then that's it. Notice, he he doesn't desire more from the Bible in order to simply accumulate Bible knowledge or to impress others at his community group or to not look stupid at his community group. He doesn't desire more from God's word, even simply to minister it to others or in order to prepare a sermon. Take that, Ryan, right? Preachers all know that it's easy to treat God's word like the book of the next sermon. And it's that, but it's so much more than that. He wants to see more and understand more in order for him, himself, to better obey God's ways. I find that very convicting. I ask, am I interested in actually obeying more? Or do I feel like I'm good enough as long as I don't get in trouble? You know, am I zealous for more? Am I asking God for more? Am I asking God specifically to see more in the Bible in order that I might obey him better and more fully. A few years ago, Kevin DeYoung wrote a little book called The Whole, H-O-L-E, In Our Holiness, subtitled, Filling the Gap Between Gospel Passion and the Pursuit of Godliness. Somewhere toward the beginning, he wonders whether some Christians think of holiness like he, like Kevin DeYoung, thinks of Camping, He says camping is fine for others if they want to do it. He's not sure really of the point, though, of all the extra work. He might have a little bit of respect for those who go camping and for those who have the courage and the know-how to live this temporary, difficult life that we've got past many, many years ago, but somehow feel the need to go back to. And I'm sorry if you just came From a camping trip. Some of you did. But he says it's not for him. And I say amen to that. It's not for me. And we might think of holiness as something like that. Eh, Some do it. Some are into it. But it's it's not essential. It's not salvation. Salvation is by grace alone and through faith alone. And indeed it is. And our psalm will get to that very point in just a little bit. But that grace alone faith alone salvation well it shouldn't lead us to think of holiness and obedience and honoring god as just for some just an option just in addition you know it's for those who are maybe more conservative or maybe more guilt ridden so they feel like they need to do it or or just those who are into discipline kind of things I can't take time to show you this morning, but we could very easily go to the New Testament and spend a lot of time looking at passages that might suggest for us that we may not be Christians at all. We may not have that free grace, faith alone salvation at all, if it hasn't produced in us a desire to honor the one who saved us at such a cost. Those forgiven of their sins don't need to pay back their debt, but they do need to walk in light of their forgiveness. And they should want to. And maybe you've forgotten that. And maybe you've forgotten that the Bible helps you to see not just the what of God's ways, what they are, but the why and the how of walking in God's ways. So pray that he'd show you more from the Bible so that you might obey him better and more. Secondly, pray for proper inclination and attention. Pray for proper inclination and attention. Right there in the middle of the first stanza, there are two verses that say roughly the same thing. Verse 36, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. And then, the negative and the positive are reversed in verse 37. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. So here's one of those ways in which these verses relate to the world, and particularly the things of the world. Let's start with the negative way it's put in the two verses. What is he hoping to avoid? Well, verse 36, selfish gain. Verse 37, looking at worthless things. He doesn't want those in his life. He needs help to not not go to those and not look to those. And again, we'd have to clarify here, if we're speaking whole Bible, that this isn't the only way the Bible speaks of quote-unquote things or gain. Gain can be a gift from God. It can be very good. Gain can be enjoyed, and it can be shared for God's glory. Of course, not all things are worthless things. Some are very good things. These verses aren't calling us at all to a possessionless poverty where we loathe God's provision. No, but there is a category here of getting Gain selfishly, simply for ourselves, simply for our pleasure, simply to consume. That kind of gain is often gained unjustly, and that's one of the ways it can be translated here, unjust gain. And there's a category of things that really deserves the word worthless in front of them, worthless things. Now with worthless things, it's a little bit more tricky than selfish gain or unjust gain because good things, even those gained justly and fairly, they actually can become worthless things when we expect more of them than God has designed. Worthless things is a way of talking about idols in the Old Testament. Idols. And idols can be literal religious statues that people bow to and burn something in front of or pray to. But they can also be what we might call idols of the heart. Where any good thing can be treated like a God thing entrusted in, worshipped, or loved in a way that it's just idolatry. Good things can become worthless things when they're turned into God-like things. So when we look to things to satisfy, reputation, your bank account, your investments, your resume, your kids, your sports, your athletic achievements, Your clothes, your looks, your body, these things, good things. But if we look to them to get our satisfaction, if we look for those things to fill us, full fill us, fill us full, then we've turned them into God-like things, and we're idolatrous. We sang from Psalm 115 to start our service this morning. Those who make idols will become like those idols. It's a biblical principle. We become like what we behold. So either we're beholding Christ, beholding God's glory in the Bible, and being changed into that image, or we are beholding anything else, and we're becoming like those things which are weak and fallen, and and they don't work like they were once made to. Idols have ears, but they don't hear. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have arms, but they don't move. And everyone who trusts in them becomes like them. They don't see, they don't hear, they don't work, they don't move. So he wants to avoid selfish gain and worthless things. And so we praise, incline my heart not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. And then there's a positive element to verse 36 and 37. What's the alternative to beholding worthless things? Well, it isn't horse blinders, it isn't imitating the ostrich and burying our head in the sand. It's not moving to a remote desert island where there are no temptations as if such a place existed. The answer is in the Bible. Incline my heart, what's it say, to your testimonies. Verse 37, turn my eyes from, yes, worthless things, but that implies a turning to. Turning to what? Well, your ways and give me life. In your ways. Life. Not just the continuation of life. But I think here he means abundant life. Full life. In God's ways. The world says living life is doing whatever you want to do. Not the Bible. The Bible says God's paths are full of life. It's the abundant life. He'll later go on to say It's in a wide place, which means freedom. He's got freedom in God's ways. He's not constricted by God's ways. He's not frustrated by God's ways. He prays, asking God to keep him focused on the right things, specifically God's word. So Christian, I wonder this morning, do you need to Acknowledge to God that your eyes lately have been fixed on the things of this world in a way where you love and trust them way too much and your eyes are not on him and not on his word. You need to pray this morning that God would redirect your attention, redirect your inclinations, don't you want a heart that sort of rolls downhill towards God's commandments? That's my imagery for incline my heart. Incline it, Lord. Just make the pitch steep towards your commandments and make it hard to sin against you. Don't all of us need to ongoingly pray something like that. Even in our best of days, that God would incline our hearts to his ways and keep our eyes on his word and off of worthless things. I hope you come back to verse 36 and 37 often, maybe years after we're done with this series. Thirdly, pray according to the promise of steadfast love. Pray according to the promise of steadfast love. And here's where we come to grace. In case anyone might have thought that the obedience of our first point in the sermon was to earn God's favor and not in response to God's favor. Or in case you might have thought that that prayer of protection from worthless things, our point number two, was a way for us to keep ourselves clean before God and hence get in good with him. No, now we see that it's all rooted in his grace, his steadfast love, and so his desire to obey and his desire to keep his eyes on the right things springs out of God's promise and his love in his salvation. You see, back in verse 38, confirm to your servant your promise, you might wonder, what promise? Is this sort of like a in mad libs where you can just fill it in, whatever your promise is, whatever you want his promise to be for you, then it'll be that. No. And it probably isn't something very specific in the life and the mind of the psalmist. He probably means your promise of salvation. That's probably the biggest promise of all, right? It's certainly the first promise given to us On the other side of the fall when sin entered the world. Genesis 3.15, God said he would defeat Satan uh, through the seed of the woman. So there's a promise. Confirm to your servant your promise. Affirm it. Help me to know it. Help me to believe it. Help me to know it's sure. Then verse 41, let your steadfast love come to me. Your salvation according to your promise. These are gospel-rich words. These are words and phrases that are pregnant with history and theology and significance. God saves according to his steadfast love. We've sung of steadfast love this morning. We've heard it read from various psalms. This is one Hebrew word that you might know. Chesed. Chesed steadfast love. It's a rich word. It means God's covenantal love. It means his unchanging, unflinching commitment to show mercy and to be in relationship with his people. We see it in Exodus 34. Let me read you just a bit there. The story of when Moses asked to see God's glory and wanted to have a name for the God he was talking to and would represent to Pharaoh. In Exodus 34, God told him, you can't see my glory, but here's what I'll do. I'll pass by and I'll tell you my name. And it says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in chesed, steadfast love and faithfulness, and keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's steadfast love. That's our God. That's who he is. That's his full name. That's the basis for sinners relating to him and being reconciled to him. And you have to know this isn't just a promise that he'll be kind, he'll be merciful, and that won't change, but it has a promise that also eventually had a payment, a payment. You see, thousands of years later, after the days of Moses, thousands of years later, that That promise of steadfast love and forgiveness of sins came to a fuller realization when Jesus showed up. He he was the embodiment of God's grace and his glory. And so John can say in his gospel as he introduces Jesus to us, The word, that's Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, He became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what Moses was praying for God, asking God to do, to to be with us, to be with us in the camp and, and go with us. And Jesus came and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here, that promise of salvation and steadfast love and Covenantal faithfulness and relationship and forgiveness of sins, these are all realized now in Jesus, who came and lived righteously. He died sacrificially for our sins and was raised on the third day victoriously and now lives forevermore. And because he was raised, we can believe that he offers to us forgiveness and mercy because of his payment. So if you're not a Christian, this is where I would point you. Maybe you begin, you'd begin reading in John's Gospel so you can get right to the point of Jesus, who's the crux, literally, of God's plan and the one who fulfilled the promises of salvation and steadfast love found all through the Old Testament. Fourth, we should pray to testify well when taunted. Here's what's unique in this stanza so far, verses 42 to 46. We have another connection with this fallen world, now with fallen people. That is, those who are against God and so they're against his people. We saw last week that this psalmist calls himself a stranger on the earth. He's in a foreign land. He's in a land, he says, where princes are plotting against him. Well, this week we see his desire to represent God well in front of those kind of people. He wants to speak on God's behalf. He says in verse 42, he, he wants to have an answer for those who taunt him, those who mock him, those who tease him. Even this, though, is rooted in a relationship with God. Don't miss even the verbal connection. You see, verse 41, it's, It's about his steadfast love and his salvation, his promise. Verse 42, then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me. So him representing God well in the world comes from God's love for him and his acceptance with him. Further, verse 43, he asked that God would not take this word of truth out of his mouth. In other words, may I keep testifying. May it be constant. May it not be sputtering in here or there. And then verse 46. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and not be put to shame. Now, you might wonder, what's going on here? Is this a man on trial? Perhaps. We don't know exactly when this was. We don't know exactly the circumstances. You can imagine several different Bible story scenarios that would fit this kind of thing you think of Daniel when he was he was in Babylon he was under two different rulers there and he more than once was called upon to testify at times he was even accused which gave rise to then his ability to testify before that we can think of how Moses did the same thing long ago in the days of the Exodus, when he represented God to the Pharaoh of Egypt. Of course, we can think of how Jesus exemplified verse 42 and verse 46 here. When, especially when he was on trial before his crucifixion. We as a church, not long ago, saw the Apostle Paul doing this in the book of Acts. Acts 22-28 to 28 shows Paul on trial and defending the faith of the Lord Jesus, whom he began to follow many years before. This is also what First Peter is encouraging when it says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. We're to represent Him well, especially when we're taunted. We're to testify. Now, you might think that this doesn't apply to you as a Christian living in 21st century America, where you might think you comfortably live your Christian life and easily live it. In some ways, it's true. Keep in mind, that might not always apply. The times are a-changing, as Bob Dylan long ago said. And it might soon change to where Christians are frequently, regularly, where it's the norm, where they have to testify on God's behalf as they're accused and as they're taunted. Keep in mind, too, it doesn't apply. It does apply even now, though maybe in less dramatic ways than Daniel facing the lion's den or Christians who are about to be burned at the stake. Those who are faithful, even in our country today, will occasionally lose friends. They will occasionally be mocked. If they're faithful, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There's no asterisk next to that verse in 2 Timothy. And even when you're not taunted, even when you're not persecuted or shamed, we're still to speak on God's behalf, right? Every Christian can and should pray, Lord. May I today have an answer for someone who asks me about you? Lord, would you put it in the heart of someone to actually ask me? Maybe Lord, I should say something before they ask me. Would you give me the courage to do it? Would you keep your word in my mouth, would you? Would you keep Jesus quick on my lips? Lord, would you please help me today to speak boldly and freely and happily? No matter the audience, no matter how much of an impressive person they are in the eyes of the world, no matter how much of a mover and shaker they are, may I speak boldly and unashamedly like this man was willing to do before kings. I was reminded this week of Luke 7 and the awesome privilege that we have to point to Jesus. Would you just listen to Luke 7 or turn there if you want to in your Bibles? I just want to share a little bit. I was recently in a board meeting in Chicago and one of the brothers there led us in a devotional from Luke 7. And so it's just on my mind and so as we talk about testifying, I can't help but think of Luke 7. Where there Jesus is explaining the role of John the Baptist in redemptive history. And he asks the crowd listening to him, Who was John? Who is he? And then he answers, picking up in verse 26 of Luke 7. A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Then Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, that's a lot of people, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, if we were preaching on this one passage, we take our time getting to the point, but let me just cut right to it. John's unique greatness among the Old Testament prophets was because he was the one who was privileged to literally point to the Messiah. All the others talked about him. They foreshadowed him. They described him in various ways and types. John was the one guy at that point in redemptive history to say, that's the one who takes away the sin of the world. He's the lamb. There's none greater than John then. No prophet is greater than John, not Isaiah who wrote 66 chapters. John is the most privileged. And yet, any Christian since John, every Christian since John the Baptist, the lowliest in the kingdom, the least in the kingdom, the the least prepared to testify about Jesus, they can still testify Of Jesus with even greater clarity, with more history, and with deeper theology than John the Baptist could, the greatest prophet up until his day. Every Christian who knows that Jesus died on a cross for the forgiveness of sins and was raised on the third day can say as much to the world, and they are privileged. Beyond that of John the Baptist. How great is that? So, greatness then isn't determined by any other measure than speaking and representing Jesus well to the world. So, let's speak. Let's testify whether whether we're tested or not. Now, back to Psalm 119 for one last point, just briefly. Why does this man resolve to speak on God's behalf and to obey God like he does? What's the basis for it? Well, let's read the last two verses of our passage again. For I find my delight. Notice, for I find my delight. I, I want to speak before kings. For I find my delight in your commandments which I love. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love. I will meditate on your statutes. To lift up hands to God's commands is a spectacular thing. It's amazing. Lifting up hands is a gesture done in prayer or praise. It's not all over the Bible. There are a few different times where it's used. Like lifting up hands to God, uh, or lifting up hands to his temple, Psalm 24 says. Psalm 119 is the only place in the Bible that talks about lifting up hands toward the Bible. It's an amazing statement. It almost says too much. It's true that Christians aren't to worship the Bible. I don't know of anyone that actually does that. No, we're not to worship the Bible. We're to worship the God of the Bible. And we're to worship that God of the Bible through the Bible. The connection between Bible and God is so strong. He has exalted above his name, his word. So it's like the connection between God and his temple In Psalm 24, the psalmist could talk of lifting up hands to the temple because the temple or the tabernacle is the place of God's presence, so to speak. It's it's his house. It's where he dwells. It's where his glory is. So lifting up hands to the temple is paramount to saying, lifting up hands to you. But Psalm 119 says it about the Bible. I will lift up my hands in prayer and praise toward your word. Because the Bible shows us God. It's where we go to get him. It's where we go to hear from him. It's where we go to see what he wants. To see what he says to us. And unlike the temple which was destroyed long ago. And is now transformed and further realized in the new covenant, right, so that we don't look for a building for God's presence. We are that building. But, but the Bible continues, both Old and New Testament. Now with 27 more books, the Bible is still how we connect to God, how we commune with him, at least until we see him in heaven, which is the rest of your life, however long it is. So praise God for his word. Find delight in it. Love it. Don't you love the superfluous repetition of delight and love in these last couple of verses? I mean, just hear it. I delight in your commandments, which I love. I lift my hands towards your commands, which I love. Who talks like that? Teenagers do. I've got four of them, I know. I can hear my girls saying something like this. This new dress, which I love. (laughs) It's almost teenager language here. And I say that with the utmost affection and appreciation for teenagers who love lots of stuff. This man's instinct when speaking about the Bible is just to insert parenthetical statements about his love for the Bible. Right after his delight of the Bible. I love the Bible. This is a man who doesn't care what others think of him. This is a man who is totally in love with the Bible. Because he's in love with the God of the Bible. This is a man whose, yes, his heart is sometimes inclined in the wrong direction. But he knows what to do. He needs to... Tell God about that and ask for God's help. Yes, he knows that at times he's tempted to fix his eyes on the wrong things, but he knows what to do. Tell God, ask for his help. He wants to see more from the Bible, that he might do more of the Bible. He knows that's the wide place, the place of freedom. And so he can speak freely In the presence of kings and princes, about what the Bible says, about what he's seen and heard. I imagine he's like the disciples in Acts 4 who said, We can't help but speak the things which we have seen and heard. He finds delight in the Bible, which he loves. He praises God for the Bible, which he loves, because he loves the God of the Bible. And it's there in the Bible that we go to see him, to hear him, to commune with him, to see what he wants of us, to see what he's promised to us, to see how he loves us and what he's done and what he'll do and what's still to come. So let's just keep going back to the Bible Sunday after Sunday as often as you can do it on your own or with your family. The Bible is good. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, the Bible is good because you are good. Your word is trustworthy. It is sure. It is established. It's what we need. We think of how not long ago we were in 2 Peter, where he was warning false teachers Warning, really, the church of false teachers who were veering from your word. They were denying your word. And Peter insisted, we need your word. We need your word. So Lord, give us more of yourself through your word. Sustain us in our suffering through your word. Remove sin and weakness through your word. And help us to speak it to others, not just the world, but also each other in the church. And may we do it again and again until, Lord Jesus, you return and we see you face to face and are changed into the same very image by your grace and glory. Amen.